You could sing that because it's true, right? God cares about the details of your life, the littlest things, whatever you're going through right now. He intimately is aware and concerned with what you walk through on a daily basis. But he's also intimately concerned on a national and international scale, isn't he? He's very aware of what's going on in Israel right now. If you're not dialed into it in the news, uh, Israel's officially at war. Um, not the first time they've been at war. I understand that, but they're uh, in a very difficult place. And so we want to pray for those involved in both sides of the conflict that there would be God would get victory and that people would come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of this. But we also want to pray for protection and for individuals who are walking through this incredible battle that they're facing. I'm personally supposed to be in Israel in two weeks, so kind of wondering. Um, hmm. wonder if that's going to happen. There's 40 of us from New Hope that are supposed to be going. And uh, God's timing is perfect, though, so we'll wait and see what He has in mind. But I want to also bear down on the reality that we're going to be in Joshua 7 this morning, and you're going to find how God's going to speak directly to your life about the things that you're walking through, through this passage this morning. So I want to pray about all those things with you, and then we'll step into it. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for every single soul that's in the auditorium and everyone who's joining through the broadcast, that you would knit our hearts together in a common unity of love for each other, a desire to be in communal relationship and to be watching out for each other, to be there in the hard times and in the good times. We know that you are intimately concerned about the hard things that we go through and the good things that we go through, but you work through each of us to encourage and strengthen other people. So I pray, Father, that people would find that here to be true at New Hope, that we are in community together. At the same time, we pray for those who are overseas and involved in a war, both in the Ukraine and in Israel, God, that you would get victory out of what's taking place. You always get victory, but Father, we ask that you would make it obvious because we're seeing hundreds and hundreds of people dying, and we ask that you would accomplish your purposes through this. So we pray for protection. We pray for peace. We pray that justice would be accomplished and that you would restore harmony on this planet. Ultimately, Father, we recognize that will not happen in full until Jesus returns. But we turn these things over to you, asking that you would accomplish your purposes, and we continue to pray for peace. We pray for ourselves right now that you would teach us through the book of Joshua, specifically, Father, through chapter 7, as we learn about how to respond to the things that you bring our way and what our response should be. We pray for this in the majestic name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. amen. In a few weeks, very short time, we're going to be out of the book of Joshua. And it's going to go pretty fast because there's multiple chapters left. Obviously, you realize we're not going to hit every chapter. So I'm going to encourage you this morning to look at chapter 8 yourself this week or maybe later today. One of the things you have to remember when we were in chapter 6 last week is that chapter 6 flows seamlessly right into chapter 7. One of the disservices of the way that the Bible is put together in modern times is that chapters and verses didn't originally exist in the original text. That was something that was added by translators to help people put the Bible in a more digestible format. So the verses, the number of verses that you find, and the chapter divisions, they weren't there in the original text. 
And that can cause confusion when you come to something like chapter 6 and chapter 7. Having been in chapter 6 last week, we think, well, that's the end of the story, Joe or Kofel, and everybody lived happily ever after. No, not so much. Chapter 7, verse 1 will show you the truth of that. But before we get there, let me take you back to chapter 6 and remind you of something that you learned last week. It says this in verse 17. The city, speaking of Jericho, the city shall be under the ban, and all of that that is in it belongs to the Lord. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things that are under the ban, so that you do not covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and bring trouble on it. You might remember, if you were here last week, that Joshua said that specifically to the people of Israel before the warriors entered the city of Jericho saying there's some things that are completely off limits. You're here as a military force, but you cannot take things. The things that are precious belong to God. Everything else is to be destroyed, but you're not to take it for your own possession. Well, that's where the chapter division comes very unimportant in this case because six should flow right into, right into seven. Let's go to chapter seven, verse one, and here's what it says. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban, therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Particular word in your notes this morning, Hebrew word ma'al, it's speaking of this treacherous behavior. In other words, someone broke a commitment to God, They, they transgressed is the definition. But what I wanted you to notice is though the crime is committed by one individual, Achan is his name, God implicates the entire nation. The crime is committed by one person, but the whole nation is considered guilty. Now, how in the world does that work? Well, at one level, ancient Israel is responsible for all of its citizens, and it's responsible for the obedience of every citizen, and it's responsible for the punishment of every citizen. Now, Paul wrote about that same principle of cohesion when he wrote in the New Testament about the church, how we are united together. Look with me on the screen at this, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? He's emphasizing the reality that we all interrelate to each other. We need each other, we're in community together, and so there's a fusion that takes place when you come into faith in Jesus Christ and you become part of the church of Jesus Christ, you're interrelated to fellow Christians and therefore you're fused together and therefore we need each other. Paul's playing off the same principle that ancient Israel understood. So at a deeper level, the sin of this one individual is not just one person's choice, in air brackets, if you will. It's not just one person's choice, it's contaminating the greater whole. So one person's sin is going to bring shame and consequence on everyone. Uh, Remarkably, we have what's called individualism here in our country, but individualism is very much a Western mindset. So you and I tend to look at things like the Bible or our daily habits through an individualistic lens. It's a byproduct of our ancestors. You may not have been born in the United States and perhaps you immigrated here or you're here on a student transfer and maybe you wouldn't be familiar with this, but American citizens who are the grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren of those who founded this country 
are the offspring of loggers and pioneers and frontiersmen, individuals who are very rugged at the core. And that has a strength, but it also has a weakness. And that individualistic mindset translated to Americans, and we are ruggedly individualistic, are we not? We are. We, we are very much a person who thinks we are an island, even though authors say no man is an island. But individualism is definitely not a characteristic of the ancient people. That's not what you would find, especially in ancient Israel. They would think much more with a tribal mentality, a familial mentality in which they're knit together as one. We'll come back to that. Let's go to verse 2. Remember, Joshua doesn't know that this has happened yet, and so he makes a decision. Verse 2, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. Now, Joshua's mindset is he doesn't know about Achan stealing things that are harem to God. He doesn't know that some of the things have been hidden away. He's entering into this mindset, which is, well, things went really good at Jericho. Let's just keep going. Let's go to Ai. Well, Ai, we understand from history, has a population of about 12,000 people at this time. And of their population of 12,000, maybe they could muster 3,000 defenders that would watch out over their city. It's really ominous as you read these passages, you find that there's nothing indicating here that they did anything to seek God's guidance in this attack. This is the very first time that Joshua does anything on his own initiative. Now, Ai is a military outpost. This is a defender city, a city that's protecting the gates of a much larger city known as Bethel. And Bethel, much larger population, it needs a military outpost, so Ai is that, and there's soldiers there, and I'm saying maybe 3,000 soldiers are there, stationed there. It's also only 15 miles away from Jericho, and they've just had victory at Jericho. So 15 miles in difference, but a huge elevation change because Jericho is 800 feet below sea level, and Ai is 2,500 feet above sea level. So there's going to be quite a hike for individuals to get from where they're at to where they're going, and that infiltrates their mind as they're thinking, how are we going to take on this city? Well, the previous strategy was he sent out a recon team. It worked at Jericho. Let's send some more spies out. And the spies go out, and they come back with a report. AI is not well defended. Two to 3,000 guys, they could easily capture that place. Let's not wear out our soldiers making them climb up that mountain to get to the city of Ai. So Joshua does exactly that, not knowing that there's sin in the camp. He sends 3,000 defenders against an army of maybe 3,000 individuals who are within the city. But the defenders in the city have a huge advantage tactically over the sons of Israel who come to war against them. Now, it could be that the events at Jericho made Joshua super confident, like, wow, things are going to go really well. Look how they went at Jericho. Let's keep taking more cities. Go with me to verse 4. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, 
but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Well, that's not like Jericho at all. That went really, really bad. They've got guys that are actually dead in the field because the defenders launched a counterattack and it's caught Israel off guard. And 36 soldiers die on the mountain slopes as they're running away. Verse 5 actually said, on the descent. On the descent, they're dying on the side of the hill. So while Gobank backed down the slopes trying to get away that they had earlier climbed this hill, now they're being killed. And there's 36, 000, or 36 casualties out of 3,000. Now you do the math on that, you'll find that it's a little bit more than 1%. Not a huge number. But Joshua is not expecting any loss whatsoever. And on the very first attempt to carry out a city by military tactics, they fail. But that's not a match for what God told Joshua. Joshua had earlier heard from God saying, no one's going to be able to stand against you, Joshua. All the days of your life, I'm going to be with you. So this puts him in this place of incredible frustration, and Joshua is shattered by the catastrophe. Verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. I personally very much appreciate the heart attitude here. They're really going into mourning. We're talking like sackcloth and ashes because they really feel the grief, and losing men on a battlefield is no small issue. And so they're grieving over this. It's very personal to them. Yet, while the result may have been because of bad planning on Joshua's part, there's a really significant transition that takes place here in his attitude. And the transition is he's beginning to make strong accusations against God. Joshua is the leader of the nation. He's the one that told them what to do as military men moving against this city. But he's not taking any responsibility for poor planning. And to be clear, this falling on his face before the ark and bowing down is not because of repentance. If you follow this story, you'll actually see it's because he's frustrated and he's got questions. So go forward with me. Verse 7. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back? And he's talking about going in retreat before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now, that sounds like the first generation of Israel. Even sounds like Moses, to some degree. Did you bring us out here just to kill us? What are the other people going to say? Now, instead of saying they ran away, in Hebrew language actually indicates that they, they turned the back of their neck toward their enemy. That's the way it's actually written. Well, if you put the back of your neck toward your enemy, that means you can't see what's behind you because you're running away, but you're running away in shame. It's a dual-purpose word. And it's talking about inner turmoil out of shame from what happened behind you, which is causing you to run the other direction. So that's what's going on with Joshua here. He's got something physical and emotional going on. 
And the response is, Joshua falls on his face before the ark, and we're told that he stays there all the way until the evening. And we don't even know what time of day he laid down. But there is sheer despondency going on here. He's expressing in despondency voices that we've all used when we're confused. God, what are you doing? I don't understand this. This isn't what I planned. Are you not with me anymore? How could you have done this? Joshua actually goes to the point where he says, why did you let this happen? This is the way he phrases it. Why did you deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? In other words, he's putting it on God. Can you identify with that attitude? I can. I think it's a common human characteristic that in times of discouragement, we are prone to blame God for setbacks as though things catch God by surprise. And Joshua is so heavily despairing here, he actually goes one step further in verse 8. He says, I wish we would have just stayed on the other side of the Jordan River. Church, let me tell you, if you ever want to tick off God, just try telling Him what He's done in the past doesn't count for anything because that's exactly what Joshua is doing here. God led them across the Jordan River on dry ground. God caused the Ark of the Covenant to be there in the middle of the river while the waters piled up 20 miles away at the city of Adam. God told them to stack up the Eben Hazer, the stones of remembrance. God is the one who took down the walls of Jericho, and God is the one who rescued and preserved Rahab and her entire family. And Joshua is telling God, none of that counts. I wish we would have just stayed on the other side of the Jordan because this has gone so badly. This is not what I planned. You obviously are not with us now. Now, I'm going to give Joshua some degree of credit here. Because we are human, we can relate to him. You're looking at the struggle of a man who's being brutally honest with God. And he's asking for answers to questions. But unfortunately, he's crossed the line because he stepped into an accusatory tone. And going to guns with God is not a good idea. He's suggesting that God meant this for harm, and it is absolutely the wrong perspective. So this guy needs a little light to shine in the midst of his darkness. Uh, I want to show you the verse in just a moment, verse 10, but let me, let me explain it to you this way. What happens next is very much like when God had to speak to Job, when Job had questions about why things were going wrong in his life. God had to approach Job and say, stand up. And brace yourself like a man, for I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you are so wise. This is essentially what he carries into this conversation with Joshua, verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? In other words, get off the ground and stop whining. See, Joshua has concluded that this humiliating defeat has come directly from God's decision to not intervene. And he's not wrong. He's actually right. God did choose not to intervene. Where he's wrong is he's accusing God of wanting to destroy his own. And that's not reality. So God has to reshape his thinking. Now, this is a bit long. 
But bear with me on this because this is all about God speaking, and God gives great attention to detail as we talked about in the beginning. God is very focused on the little things and the big things. You're going to see specificity here in how He is focused on the little things because Joshua lacks the big picture. Go with me to verse 11. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed My covenant which I commanded them, and they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and they have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put some of those things put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed." Is the word that we used last week, harem, when something is devoted to destruction. They have become harem. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourself for tomorrow, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. So God is aware even when somebody hides things under the rug in their tent. He's aware of the littlest detail, but watch the big picture. Look at verse 11. Israel has sinned. Oh, wait, that was one guy that did that. How does this actually work? Why does God state it this way? Well, first, this sin is more than just simple theft. Now, certainly that's going on, but at its core, we would acknowledge that stealing is a mindset. And the mindset is actually this, God's not going to meet my needs. He's not going to meet my wants. I have to take action and take the thing that I want or the thing that I desire. I covet it, so I'm going to take it. Look back with me again at verse 1. You see it on the screen. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regards to the things under the ban. The word that's actually used here is we're told Israel acted unfaithfully, and the word that's used here is the exact same word that's used for adultery when two are in relationship and there's been a betrayal. And God says there's been a betrayal of the trust between the two of us. Achan has acted in a way that is singular, in a way that breaks the covenant and betrays the trust of a covenant relationship. But according to God in verse 11, this affects the entire community because God views it as quite tribal in its association. So Israel collectively sinned, and he goes to the point of saying, they, 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 four times in two verses, even though God knows that it's specifically one person. The point is this, the betrayal is in not trusting God's capacity to supply and then pursuing other objects of affection. And the result of that is the warning back in chapter 6 actually is coming true. Just like Jericho, the entire nation is going to be given over to destruction or harem, if you will. So God actually has to say to them in verse 12, I'm not going to be with you anymore. I will not walk with you unless, and there is no more horrible thing than to think that God has abandoned you. No more horrible thing than to hear God is not going to be with you unless you take action. 
So God's got a formula for them to resolve this issue. Go with me to the next verse, verse 14. In the morning then you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. Verse 15, it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Now, there's a lot of speculation about how they narrowed it down, like bringing a funnel right down to a point, casting lots, some translations say, using the Uman and Thurman, which we have no idea how they used it. We don't know exactly what happened here. But here's a mystery to me. Why doesn't God just tell him it's Achan? He knows all the other details. Why not just say, Joshua, it's Achan? Well, certainly it builds drama, building drama for sure, but add to it this thought. Why this lengthy, time-consuming process? And you know this did not take five minutes, right? He's bringing the whole nation, then he gets the 12 tribes, then he's got to break it down from the tribes and go through the ancestors. This is not a fast process here. Why the lengthy process? Well, what do we know about the God of the Bible? We know that He's incredibly patient. And we know that He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Is it possible that God's giving time for this guy to confess and repent? That this process would cause guilt to come out of this situation to the degree that He would confess to what he's done here, but he doesn't, unfortunately. And I'm going to break this down in this next section for you just in sentence by sentence so you feel the weight that they're feeling as a group of people at this point in time. Verse 16, so Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes. Let's live with that for a second. If there is as many as two million people, and he's got 12 tribes representing all those people in front of him. He's got to bring the whole nation who's very interested in what's going to come out of this. And then we're told in the next statement, and the tribe of Judah was taken. So 11 tribes are dismissed, one is remaining. Verse 17, he brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerahites. So you're dismissing a really big group of people, and you've narrowed the funnel down a little tighter and it's your family. And then it goes into say, and he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And if you're not guilty, but you're in that group, you're beginning to sweat at this point. Like, did I do something I forgot about? Is this going to be me? This is really getting tight. Verse 18, he brought his household near man by man. Now this is really getting ugly because I'm still in the mix. I'm still in the line. And then we find an Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah was taken. Can you say anxiety with a capital A? Why would he do this? How incredibly uncomfortable when it's getting closer and closer and closer and the tension would be off the charts brutal. Like This is really getting close to me and I'm sure that Achan is thinking in this moment, I can't be the only one. 
I can't possibly be the only one that took some. Maybe, maybe my cousin did too. I mean, look at this big group of people. There's got to be somebody who did it besides me. I'll just be quiet. I'll just keep my mouth shut. Maybe God won't find out. Mm. As a child, my mom often said to me, Mark, be sure your sins will find you out. Ever heard that before? It took me a long time to figure out that my mom was quoting Scripture. She was actually quoting something that Moses said. Numbers, actually, chapter 32, verse 23, states it this way, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sins will find you out. Moses was talking to a group of people. He said, you you don't do what you say you're going to do. God's going to find out. Sin always comes back to bite you. Now, very interestingly, the Bible comes especially close to describing sin in a way that makes it seem like it's a, a living being, as though it's its own entity. Remember how God warned Cain back in the book of Genesis when we were there like two years ago? We were looking at Genesis chapter 4, and God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, making it look as though it's like a lion. Genesis chapter 4, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Well, that's a match for what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7. Paul was kind of fleshing this thing out that there's a a force, this force, this entity of sin, and he writes it in such a stunning way. He describes it as though it's a being that's alive within him. Look with me at Romans 7, verse 15. For what am I doing? I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He's an absolutely brilliant author if you haven't read Romans before. And Paul says, the thing I don't want to do, I do do, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. And he goes on to say, wretched man that I am. How, How could I possibly behave this way? It's almost as though sin is this living being within us. But it's not because it's part of our nature. It's been transferred to us from our fallen parents. And in the case of a really difficult situation like Joshua 7, what we find about sin here is it's actually uncovered as opposed to being confessed. He's not voluntarily confessing. He's been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. I almost brought a photo in for you this morning of one of our children. And you know, the hard thing about being a preacher's kid is you always get used for examples. So we have two sons and two daughters, and this one totally excludes our daughters from it because it's about one of our sons, and I won't mention him by name, Derek. But (laughs) he's like four or five years old. Um, He was in the upstairs bathroom, and Lori always knows when the kids are quiet at that stage, they're probably up to something, and he had been quiet, and so she made her way upstairs, and she found that Derek was in the bathroom, and he had found her red lipstick. Yeah. So you're probably thinking he painted the walls and the mirror and maybe the tub or things. No. Lori looked at Derek and said, Derek, did you find mommy's lipstick? (laughs) Now, mind you, he had put it all over his face, right? And so she picked him up and had him look in the mirror. Derek, did you take mommy's lipstick and use it on your face? 
when your hand's in the cookie jar, you have to admit you've been caught. In this case in Joshua 7, Joshua has to drag it out of him because he did not come forward and he did not repent, but rather he's caught. Verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to Him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. When you read in the Bible, give glory to the Lord, it's demanding an honest confession of truth. You find it in the New Testament when Jesus healed a blind man. The people who found the blind man afterwards, he could see, and they demanded that that young man give glory to God because they wanted to hear their version of the truth. But he couldn't lie to them. He had to say, this guy met me and he healed me. Well, that's exactly what Joshua is doing here. He's saying, I need you to give a confession of truth. What you just did, church, when you were in praise and worship is you were confessing, confessing to the truth of who God is. That's what praise and worship is. You're confessing things that are true about Jesus. Well, he's asking him to do this exact same thing. So confession, it can go two ways. It can be a confession of sin or confession of truth but it's a form of honoring God by declaring what is truthful. That's why Scripture goes on to say in regards to Jesus, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You will speak it from your mouth one day. So Joshua is not instructing Achan to praise God like in a worship service. Rather, he's saying your confession is going to glorify God because you're going to express truth. Verse 20. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle, he's speaking of a robe here, from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and I took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth beneath my tent with the silver underneath it. A shekel today is a coin in Israel, but it's not what it was then. A shekel is a unit of measurement. Like we would use a measurement of ounces or gallon. Shekel spoke of a measurement of some item. So this robe that he's found, this beautiful mantle, this robe from Shinar, is actually from Babylon. And it's exquisitely crafted because that's what they made in that city filled with intricate designs, with rare colors and fabrics, well-woven. And then along with it, he finds 200 shekels of silver, which is about 80 ounces in today's measurement. So 80 ounces of silver, it's worth about 1,700 bucks. And then he finds 50 shekels of a bar of gold, which is worth about $36,000. So not a ton of money, but it's a lot. So you can imagine his mindset here. There it was. I saw it in the rubble. Jericho was laid waste, and I thought, man, I can't let that just be burned up. It's too beautiful. I've never seen such artistry. And there with it was 200 shekels of silver and and a bar of pure gold. I thought to myself, no one's going to know. God certainly wouldn't want this destroyed. What possible harm could there be in taking it for myself? There's so much here. God would never find out. Achan knew exactly the mandatory requirements to turn it over to the Lord's treasury, but he chose to ignore that. But no one had seen him scoop up the treasure, 
So he obviously carried it home, which implicates his family because there's no way to hide a treasure like that inside your tent where your family lives with you without them seeing what you have. What's that lump under the rug, Dad? It becomes very obvious to the rest of the family. So they become implicated in this as well. And in his action, he's placing his personal desire above God, which is unfortunately what we do as humans. But he's also placed the overall community at risk because of his individual sin. So verse 20 tells us he confesses, but not voluntarily. He's been caught. He's been trapped. There's nothing that indicates here that there's been any repentance. His total silence during this narrowing down process actually confirms to you that this guy's got a really hard heart about this. And if you follow the progression as it's getting closer and closer, first it's his tribe, then it's his clan, then it's his household, pretty soon it's him. And obviously, he's been hoping to avoid detection and thinking someone else must be guilty. They, They can't possibly find me. But once he confesses, once he's caught, he confesses, and he immediately states it and says the following, I saw the plunder, I wanted the plunder, I took the plunder. You watch, the three statements are there which is the exact same thing that Eve said she did back in the garden. Every single sin since the fall in the garden is, I saw it, I wanted it, I took it. It just takes place in different forms. But he stated the sin of humanity here. I saw it, I wanted it, I took it. And that's the progression you find in the book of Genesis with the fall of humankind. Go forward with me, verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. And if you follow the story, you'll find that none of these stolen items are going to be placed in the treasury of God because they're so tainted by Achan's sin, it's going to require total destruction. And now this guy finds himself in the position of the inhabitants of Jericho. Now he's become harem. Now he's going to be devoted to destruction. That's on a personal level, but let's catch the corporate level here. By holding the whole nation accountable for the sin of one individual action, God is showing these people that they are actually the ones who he calls his own. They're actually part of something much bigger than themselves individually that they are not just individualistic people. They're part of a much bigger whole. They're part of God's actions on behalf of an entire watching world. That God is seeing what this one did, contaminated everybody else, and the world watches when people who belong to God do things that offend God. So here's where my mind went. I've considered Rahab in this situation and her entire family. Rahab was rescued from Jericho, by the way. So she's become part of this nation here. And the things that were destroyed in Jericho were part of her community. They belonged to the world that she used to live in. And very likely, she knew the person who used to wear that blue robe from Babylon. Because Jericho wasn't that big. She certainly knew her neighbor. She probably saw it going across town. And if anybody understood the value of earthly goods, she would. 
So just like human nature, Rahab would be no different than Achan. Her desire would have been to seize some of these things that are going to be destroyed for themselves, but they don't. But now they're part of this community and they're watching this new nation who says they're identified and dedicated to God. And I'm thinking the impression on these Gentiles watching these Jews had to be amazingly stunning. Like, wow, this God does not mess around. God does not mess around with sin. Amen, New Hope? He doesn't. There's no fooling God. So verse 24, then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? In other words, why have you brought trouble on us? The Lord will trouble you this day. That would be horrible to hear. Oh, my goodness. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. There is a true sense of indignation on Joshua's part. You brought trouble on us. You have cost us 36 lives. 36 families whose lives have been destroyed by the sin of one person. And the death penalty is made even more severe because of the, the, the abhorrent nature of burning a body at this time and all his possessions. Just an abhorrent person. So the, the text literally, literally reads in the Hebrew language, Israel stoned him with a stone, meaning people individually picked up a stone, personally threw it at this guy to hit him. And then it goes on to say, and they burned them with fire, and then they stoned them with stones, plural, meaning they heaped a great pile of stones. And Joshua goes on to write at the end of the chapter, and the pile of stones is still there to this day, meaning at the day that the book was written. Those things were still there. And I'm often thinking, how many times people walked by that pile of stones and thought, man, there's like $40,000 inside there. That silver and gold has just been melted, but it's still there. Because that's where our mind would go, but nobody wants to touch it because there's also a charred body inside there, this carcass that's under this pile of stones, because God does not mess around. And the stupid thing is this. Achan's well off. He's got herds of sheep. He's got oxen. He's got donkeys. He's got tents. This is a guy who's not in need of anything. But he wanted it. He doesn't have a real need. He just coveted it. And ironically, in chapter 8, when God allows them to go to the next city, he says to the people of Israel, you know what? You guys can have anything you want out of this city. Had he been patient and waited on God, all of his needs would have been met if he'd only waited on God. So what do you and I take away from this sad story this morning? Because it's pretty dark. Well, we're reminded again of God's holiness, for sure. We're reminded of the absolute holiness of God, a God who does not mess around with sin, and sin has massive consequences. But then also there's this reality. Mature adults know, thinking adults know, 
that the behavior, the wrong behavior of an individual does affect everyone else. We'd like to think it's individualistic because of our mindset and the Western way we look through that lens. So we'd like to think it doesn't affect anybody, it's just me, it's my world. But the sin of one does affect an entire nation, even though our nation likes to use phrases culturally like, my body, my choice, my sexual preference is my desire, keep your legislation out of my bedroom. God says otherwise. He says the consequence of sin, one individual sin, ripples out through an entire nation and it can disrupt an entire world. So Achan's story actually speaks from the grave in a very relevant and expansive way to our age for this reason. The trademark of our generation, and this is true, church, you might as well own it. I don't care if you're 15 years old or 85 years old. This is a trademark of our generation. Personal desire overrides every other consideration. We do not think communally in that way. We think it's about me and what I want, and that thinking brings devastation. Just frame it in your mind. God truly loved these ancient people. So he put boundaries in place for their good, not for their harm, in the exact same way that he loves the church today. He loves us just like he loved them. He purchased you at the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no higher price that could be paid for you. So he wants us to succeed. He wants us to succeed in living successfully. How do we do that? By putting him first. However, this is a sad reality. Anytime that we allow our own desire to crowd out obedience to God, what we're actually doing is putting on Achan's Babylonian robe and we're stuffing our pockets with those golden shekels as a visual for us. Because you got a guy here that hid something away that he thought he could hide. It's not like he could wear it to work the next day. Aiken, where'd you get that great robe? Well, I picked it up at the flea market down the street. Really? I don't think so. Let me get personal with you, as if I haven't already. Here's a simple example for you, church. How many people profess Jesus Christ as Lord in America, yet make Aiken's choice in how they don't worship God? For instance, how many know fully well that they belong in church on the Lord's day, but choose not to be deliberately saying, yeah, I know better. I've come to the conclusion after three years now removed from COVID that COVID-19 became the great permission slip for America. It's like a get out of jail free card. Oh, I don't have to go to church. Well, that's good because I really want to go golfing on Sunday morning. And besides, you know, the, the weather is only good for so long in Michigan, so I got to take advantage of it. So churches do what New Hope did and become very, very good at broadcast services, and I'm really glad that we are because it's a great tool for people who cannot be here in any other way. 
But when we let the, the broadcast of the service become a substitute for being in community together, where God says you need to be together and do not forsake the assembly of the brethren, which is actually a command of God, then we're saying, no, I know better because my golf game is really lacking. And besides, I only get a couple days a week for myself, so I really need to take advantage of that. I'm not trying to shame anybody. I know there's people that need to stay away because of work or because of health reasons, and the broadcast service is there for that reason. But the simple decision to stay totally away ignores the reality that your neighbors and your family are watching us, just like Rahab was watching the community of Israel. And God commands us not to forsake getting together. So here's the big issue for me. If the people of God who praise Jesus and say he's holy, 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 if those people can't get these things correct, how can we possibly expect the people of the world who don't know God to do any better when it comes to making choices for how they're going to live their own lives? But human logic goes this way. Human logic says, but doesn't God want me happy? I thought God wanted me happy. And anyone asking that question is always anticipating the answer, well, yes, God wants you happy. And is quickly answering by saying, well, I know what makes me happy, playing golf on Sunday morning. I'm not just trying to pick on golfers, sorry, guys. <laughs> guys and girls. The, the flaw in that particular thinking is this. We know what makes us happy. We know what gives us momentary pleasure. Therefore, our rationale is, God's got to let me do that thing. But the big issue is this. If our personal happiness, our personal desire comes at the expense of rebelling against God, then someone is wrong. Either God's wrong or we're wrong. Well, I know who I vote for because God's never wrong, right? So the truth is, we can't rebel against what God commands because we say we belong to Him. How does that relate to Joshua chapter 7? Well, the reality is once we land on that position, whether or not others discover our sin, whether or not others find out the things that we've done here on earth, the truth according to God's Word is your sin will discover you. You cannot run from the consequences of sin. Sin has the power to pay back the sinner, and payback is hell. And I'm not just using the euphemism that we use in our language today. Payback of sin, the paycheck, is hell. And we can't defeat it in our own strength. So God's Word actually says, don't even think about toying with sin. Don't play with it. Don't pet it. It cannot be tamed no matter how strong that you think you are. The only way to escape the clutches of sin is to crush it with something greater than sin. And Jesus crushed sin. He did that through His death and resurrection. You've got to deal with sin in your life. You've got to be in relationship with Jesus, and He will crush sin's power because he did that at the cross. Will you continue to fail? Yes. But God will see you as holy if you're in relationship with Jesus, and he is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins and forgive us for all our unrighteousness. That's your God. He is very patient, and he's not willing that any would perish, 
but that all would come to repentance. So I close with this verse, Revelation chapter 1. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and praise God for this church and released us from our sins by his blood. That's your God. Michael is going to lead us in worship in just a minute for closing song. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I pray together with you. And here's a temptation for you. Many times when we hear that there's going to be a song to wrap things up, we start thinking, where's my car keys? This is a good time to exit. This God whom you proclaim is holy and just and righteous and true is worthy of all praise. And we get a chance to do that right now together in community. So let's do that loudly to celebrate this God. You pray with me? Father, I thank you for these witnesses to what you have done in their life. That you have defeated sin, that you have crushed it at the cost of your own life. We praise you and thank you for that reality in our life. We know we continue to stumble. But thank you, God, that there's forgiveness in you and you expect us to confess and to repent. But you are faithful to forgive. Praise you for the blood of Jesus who has released us from all our sin. We come before you as people who want to praise and worship you because of that truth and that reality, that victory in our life. For anyone, Father, who may not yet know you, I pray that you would use these words, use this music to draw them into relationship with you, that they too can be released from their sin. Do this, Father, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said,